Welcome back to another episode of the Shema Podcast. My friends, I have a very important topic, one I've been wanting to discuss for so long. You know, we talk a lot about Amuna, knowing that everything God does, it's all for the good. You know, we talk about how the, the Torah, the mitzvot, everything he's given us is there in order to strengthen our Amuna. And we always want to grow in this area. But you know, what happens when tragedy hits? Thank God I have never had this happen to me, but I know so many people who have. Where the worst type of tragedy occurs, someone loses a loved one, a child, a spouse. How do we forge ahead in such a situation? I recall around 17 years ago, my wife found out that she was pregnant. I remember going to the doctor for the first time. They did the ultrasound and the doctor circled something on the ultrasound and said, that's your baby. And I remember going back with excitement and seeing the little girl was forming, the limbs were forming. And I was so excited to go back and just watch this beautiful little girl being formed in the womb of my wife until she was perfect. And it was time for her to come into the world. And I was able to hold her and now develop a real relationship with her. And the fact is, my friends, is that when we come into this world, it is also a womb. And Hashem is forging us into an entity that can exist with him one day in Olamaba, in a world where we have been forged so that we can stand in his presence and have a real relationship. And I can imagine from his side, looking into the world, he sees our Nisham as being forged into what he wants. But from our perspective, it can be painful. There's a lot of challenges around this. And this, of course, is the most serious of one. You know, I have many people that have come on this podcast that have lost children. And I've had this topic on my spreadsheet. You know, you're listening for a while. You know, I like spreadsheets. I have one column where I have podcast topics. And the one is, who's going to come speak about it? And on this one, I and often I just leave it blank until something happens. I get some sign. I meet someone. I know that's the perfect person to talk about this subject, but I did want to reach out to my friends and say, hey, we'd love if you came on the podcast and revisited the most painful experience that you ever went through and still suffer with today. But fortunately for us, my friends, I have come into contact with Rabbi Gershon Schusterman, and he wrote this beautiful book that I read, and he's going to come on and talk about this because not only is he a rabbi who understands this academically, but he experienced this himself, and he's going to share with us his, his wisdom on what he learned from going through this experience and share this with all of us. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Rabbi Schusterman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Me and my guest appreciate you being here. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I didn't write a book to make money because there's no money in printing books. But the purpose was to reach souls of people who will read it. In this manner, I'm reaching people, whether they have the book or not but I, they will hear the core or the essence of my message in the book. And that's my payment. Beautiful. 
And the book is titled, Why God, Why? How to Believe in Heaven When It Hurts Like Hell. So bring the audience up to speed and talk a little bit about what occurred and then what motivates you. You already did this to some degree. What motivates you to, to write the book? Okay. Time-wise, this took place in April of 1986. It didn't happen recently, even though I do periodically when I do podcasts, people send me condolences. I guess to some extent, that's still valid, even though in many respects, I've moved on. I've I've remarried happily for almost 36 years since then. But the realities of that day and the realities of those years are permanently part of my life and not a very pleasant part of my life. It was a Sunday morning in April of 1986, a beautiful spring, Southern California Sunday morning. It was 11 days before Passover. The Hebrew Academy, which I was the director of then, was running a Passover program for the children from preschool until grade four with 11 kids in our 17-year marriage. You'd have to expect at least a few uh, were in that demographic. So they were going to be performing. My wife, besides being a mother who wants to see her kids perform, also was a pianist. She played piano quite well. So she accompanied that program on the piano. And I was in Los Angeles. I drove down. We lived in Long Beach. Uh, the school was 15 miles south of Long Beach. The yeshiva that I taught at Sunday mornings only to the older students, I gave them a class of Hasidus one hour every Sunday, um, was 28 miles uh, north. So, but that was our regular Sunday morning pattern. And after the class, I davened with the minion, and I was driving back to Long Beach, and I got a call. Now, I've been critiqued. How could you have gotten a call? Their cell phones didn't exist in 1986. People have written critique. That wasn't true. I didn't have a cell phone. I had what they would call an attache case phone. In 1986, you could have a portable phone, but it wasn't a cell phone. It was a different technology. And as the director of a school with 400 kids, I allowed myself the luxury of being ha- being able to be in touch wherever uh, wherever I was. And my wife called me on my attaché case phone and said she's not feeling well. She had already come home from the program. She said she's not feeling well. And she wasn't a, uh, a drama queen. And I, in, in her words, I knew that this is rather serious. And I said, I'll rush down. I'll see you. I'll take you to the doctor. Let's see what's going on. And I rushed. I may have tested the speed limit a few times. And it didn't take a great diagnostician to realize that this was something serious. Our oldest son that was home was 12 years old. We told him he's in charge. He's the babysitter. There was no time to find a babysitter. And we rushed to the hospital, which was like three miles from our house, and got there. They took her in immediately. They kept me out. And I waited. As a Chabad Chassid, I called the Rebbe's office in New York, asking him that he should help telling him what was going on and asking him to say a prayer for my wife. I took out a tillum. I had in my car, I had a tillum. I recited the Psalms and waited and prayed. 
and an hour later, the doctor came out. The somber look on his face was not helpful. And then he said those fateful words, Rabbi, we did everything that we are able to, but your wife did not make it. Um, And at that moment, I knew uh, life as I had known it and life as I had planned it and the future as my wife and I together had planned it was not to be. In addition to the myriad of immediate things that needed to be addressed, one thing stands out in my mind and stayed with me from that moment was saying to myself after going through the, the, is this really happening? Is this really happening? And accepting that, yes, this is really happening. This is not a fluke. This is not bad luck. This is not a mistake. This is part of some divine plan. This is what I've believed from early on. And that's what I believe right now as well. However, do I have it within me to really live with it? That, that was a question that I didn't, I wasn't certain about. And now I can humbly and proudly say that I, I did live with it. And I did maintain not, not just faith in God and not just maintaining my observance. But while I struggled, and in the book, I talk about some of my struggles, incorporating this into my heart and into my gut. You know, a, a person is, is the, the mind is calm and cool. It can analyze everything. But then you have a heart, you have, a, you have emotions. Uh, and my emotions were not consistent with my heart. My emotions were disappointed. My emotions were, you know, different times angry. And, and I will get into that more later. But so that's where we were on in the early, on that, that day and in the early months thereafter, frustrated, but continued moving forward. And, and how many children did you have at that time? Oh, the Torah has a commandment, be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> and uh, we did that. To the best of our ability, we had 11 children in uh, 17 years. The oldest at that point was 14, and the youngest were 16-month-old twins, a boy and a girl. Wow, beautiful. All happily married today, and they all have children, families of their own. I don't want anybody to give me unnecessary sympathy. We survived, and we thrived. But at that point, the future had not uh, uh, rolled, uh, unfurled itself. So we right. were in a great state of uncertainty. And that's why I appreciate you coming on, because there are people that may be experiencing this today, uh, God forbid, uh, you know, potentially in the future. And as I was mentioning in the intro, you know, this world is like a womb. And when, when someone is perfected, the Almighty pulls them out. So they're like, our tears are not for them. It's when I, I have friends that have lost children, my tears are for for them, knowing, you know, that's just like ripping a, a, a limb away from them. And, and that's why I hope through everyone reading your book and, and, and listening to this episode that they'll be equipped and know and have some, I guess, a path forward on how to go through this process. Let me ask you this. You talked about anger. It was interesting you, you brought that up in the book because it's important because one of the things I learned early on was that when one gets angry, it's like they're engaging in idolatry, right? Because you are basically saying 
that Hashem's not in control of everything. Correct me if I'm wrong, Rabbi, but that's the whole idea. And that you are denying his existence by becoming angry in your, but it's different in this situation. It's not that you're denying God. You're just like, I just don't agree with you in this matter. Talk a little bit about that because anger is obviously a natural part of the process and, and how one reconciles that in a healthy way. I'll do my best. It's not just a, uh, when you say angry at God, it's not just uh, denying God's existence, but denying how God runs his world. And to have negative feelings would almost be normal because the, the one grieving is, has been severely traumatized. And trauma has its natural impact on the body and the psyche and even on the soul. The ideal way to be angry at God is we just read it in the Torah just a few weeks ago when Moses, when God sent Moses to Pharaoh uh, to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, right. Pharaoh made things harder. And Moses came back to God and complained, why did you do evil to this nation? And why did you send me? Did that mean that Moses was denying God's existence? Obviously, he was talking to God. He was a prophet. Did that mean that he denied God's providence? No, he, that's, he, the only way you can complain about how God runs the world is you believe that he's running the world. Right. But the focal point where he was coming from was, God, I believe in you, and I believe in that you run the world, and I believe that you're kind and caring and omnipotent and you can do everything. Why are you doing this way? it this way? It doesn't seem consistent with the values that you have set up for us. So the anger, in a roundabout way, is a reaffirmation of your faith in God. And I dare say that many people who consider themselves agnostic or even atheists and are the same people who say, and why is that? Because the world is terrible and, and why do bad things happen to good people? They don't say it calmly and coolly. They say it with passion. That passion belies what's really going on in them. If there is no God, and if nobody is running the world, why are you angry? You know, I have watched and you have watched, you know, National Geographic videos of animals in, in, in South Africa, in the Serengeti, and you see how the lion and the other animals tear apart the, uh, the, right. the weaker animals. Nobody gets very uh, worked up on it. The, we call it the law of the jungle. But people always get angry. That anger is coming from a subconscious belief that the, the world was meant to work with a system. And if there is no God, why should there be a system in the world? God is the one who set the standards of the system. And therefore, in that passion, while they may passionately say, and that's why I don't believe in God, that they really do believe in God, but they are upset and they are traumatized. And this is the way they work it out. But it's an incomplete workout. Right. Okay. You know, one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast before is on multiple occasions is how in our pursuit of coming closer to, to Hashem and a lot of this podcast, I don't know if you know, Rabbi is, is geared towards 
Baltashu was like myself. They're just beginning to learn the truth about Torah and, and approach toward Judaism. And I know this applies to, to everyone. There's obviously people that are FFBs that listen to this podcast. We talk a lot about how the there's challenges that Hashem puts on us, and it's really just there to remove a something that's hindering our connection. And so one of the examples I shared early on, I learned that the Torah was true and I was, it was just, it was just like a magical experience, just learning the Torah was true and reading it for the first time and knowing that I had a creator that could hear me. So I was just, I didn't know about the sitter. So I was just talking to him nonstop. Probably he may have regretted resurrecting me from my, my coma in life. But, but I remember that right out of the gate, something that happened is I had a major financial challenge, like never in my life where I was like, my income got cut in half. I was not figuring out with the spreadsheet, how to pay, how the math was going to work out and paying the bills. But, but simultaneously, I was learning about how everything comes from Hashem, about Sadaka. And what he was doing was pushing me to say, quit relying on money and employers and new clients for your livelihood. Rely on me. And I just started giving Sadaka, even when I didn't know how to pay my bills. The next thing I know, it was all coming back. And what he gave me was the most amazing thing of knowing I do just rely on you. That's amazing. But with hindsight, I started to saw how that was being orchestrated. And then something I did, have not shared with my audience yet is a little over a year ago, one of the greatest moments of my life is my wife of 20 years went into a mikvah and became Elisheba. And that evening as she was walking towards me as I was standing under the hoopah, my mind was just being, all these memories are coming to my mind of her as she was struggling with her alcoholism. The things that were like such difficult times, but what was happening as she was walking towards me is those memories that were so painful, they were making me so happy because I realized that she would never be walking towards me as a Jew, us living a Torah observant lifestyle if Hashem did not make her an alcoholic that forced her to have Amuna in him and let go of her control. So it just, it all like made sense. So I, I've had these experiences where you see like what seems like pain then becomes joyful, but is that even something that is applicable in a situation where you lose someone so close to you? Your story is quite dramatic and my story parallels it in content, the facts are different. Losing a job is one thing, or losing finance, financial security is one thing. Having a challenging marriage is also difficult and traumatizing, and losing a wife. While I would have said that had you asked me this question 40 years ago, I would say that would be the end of the end of the world. It felt like the end of the world when it happened, but here I am. So no, it's not the end of the world. It's the end of a chapter that you had no intention uh, to close the chapter at that point. You know, when you read a good book and when the book ends, you say, I wish the book had another hundred pages. I could say at that point, I was 38. My wife was 36. I expected this book to have another 36 years uh, of experience. Right. But apparently... It was the, the book had to end, and my wife's mission in this life has been completed. If you want to put a positive spin on a very negative situation, and my job was to pick up the pieces 
and keep it together and make it work for the next 36 years. And 36 years have passed and I'm still trying to make it work. So the bottom line is underlying whatever we might say and whatever we might write, if one is able to accept, and you use some eloquent words yourself, that God is in charge and God is active and involved in the world. Yes, God is good. And we would therefore hope that everything would follow from that goodness. But in the famous line from Eov, Job, who was the quintessential suffering, innocent person, when his wife said to him, when things all went haywire, she said, Eov, blaspheme and die. Life is not worth living. And Eov, after rebuking her that she's not speaking properly, said, shall we accept the good from God and not the bad? Accepting the good from God means waking up in the morning. <laughs> waking up in the morning and the sun is shining and you'll have a child or two who bring you much joy and sometimes a little anguish too. And your wife is smiling today and she has gotten over whatever she had was holding her back in the past. That is to live a good life. And we have to thank God for that. And and the prayers that we say are not just prayers for things. A big portion of the sitter, the prayer book, is acknowledging and thanking God for the good that we have. And if we have that as a, a daily foundation and a subconscious awareness in the back of our minds, life is good. But it is for that reason that we can say, thank God. We can say, Baruch Hashem. But if if God is not in charge of the challenges, including the tragedies, then throw out, thank God. Throw out God from the picture and from your dialogue, because uh, he's not part of it. God, God is part of both the good and the bad. The quote from Isaiah is, God says, uh, I, create, uh, I formed light and created darkness. I make peace, and I created evil. God is the creator. In Judaism, God created evil. Evil is not independent of God. Evil is God, God's creation to be the foil for good, to challenge us and give us choices in our personal lives uh, to reject evil and to choose good. If not, I don't want to say this bluntly, if there is no God, life is meaningless, and everything that happens to us is just a crapshoot. You win, you lose, you know, and that's the way it is. And then there's no meaning. And then there's no meaning. All right. So let's talk about how you went about finding meaning in this situation, because you quoted Viktor Frankl, who exercised that to the nth degree, living, you know, in a concentration camp, and realizing in the end that the Nazis had no control over how he internalized you know, what was going on around him. That was his. They could not take that away from him. How did you go about finding meaning in such a difficult and painful situation? The first thing is that uh, my faith remained intact. I don't think my faith per se was stressed. What was stressed is internal internalizing that faith. As a rabbi, I had been to many shiva homes where people were 
grieving the loss of, of a dear departed one. And I've said the right things. I knew the right things to say. But suddenly I realized that I was untried and untested because I had never suffered a loss of that type in my entire life. So my words to myself at that point sounded a little hollow. It's application. My mind could argue, could continue, would have been able to continue arguing the, the truth, that truth. But my heart said, do I really believe it? Can I believe it? Can I internalize that? And that, that's a big portion of the belief of, of Judaism. Faith comes from the soul but faith must be nurtured. It, it's not simply there. You have to bring it into your consciousness. You have to work the system, so to speak. You have to learn Torah, do mitzvahs. That's the, the, the food that nurtures the, the application of faith. And now I had to do that again from a more mature perspective, from, from a real-life experience, and that required talking to myself, talking to some senior friends of mine who were more experienced in life than I was. It also included going to therapy, because besides having a soul, we also have a body and we have a, a psyche. And my psyche was struggling. And I purposely looked for a therapist who had herself lost a spouse and was raising children on her own. I said, I need somebody who will understand the experience, and she did. And I drove into L.A. twice every two weeks and spent an hour with her, as much time as I had in the very busy period that I was in. And I did that for six months, and it was very helpful. But then, and if you've read the book, you know this segment of my life. A few years later, I remarried a wonderful woman, Hannah Rachel is her name. She had been living in Israel for eight years. She herself was a FFBBT. She grew up in an observant home uh, in, in the 40s and the 50s. Um, but then she was doing her own exploration and found, uh, she went to Israel, found wise people and righteous people who nurtured her back to her tradition. And she was, we were walking together and she says to me, Gershon, how are you? Well, that's a strange question. We've been talking all day and all in the middle of a conversation. Gershon, how are you? What I said, fine, Baruch Hashem. Fine, thank God. Then she said, no, how are you really? She must have known something that I didn't. And that really threw me for a loop. And I had an immediate reaction to that. I got dizzy. I became pale. I felt literally, physically, the world turning around me. I, I had flashes of everything that happened from the time my first wife had passed away until where we were right now. You know, that's some kind of a experience that I've never had, and I've read about it, but there was. And I knew I need help, and, it, it, and not something that I can fix myself and not that my wife can fix for me. And I found a therapist who I had known somewhat when she was in L.A. I didn't know her as a client, but I knew her as a person, and she had a practice in Jerusalem. And I spent two hours a day with her five times in the next 10 days. And she helped me figure out that to face the reality, Rabbi Schusterman, you're a rabbi and you're orthodox and you believe in God. And at the very same time, 
you have you have a big chip on your shoulder against God. You're angry at him and you're distancing yourself from him and you're not letting him in where he was. He had a prominent place in your life in a personal, intimate way. And now it's you're doing the right thing, but you're not feeling it. And, and just realizing that and taking it apart over quite a number of hours, that you know, lanced the boil or, or lanced the grudge. And as I came back to the United States after that, I really focused on that. And yes, I thank God. <laughs> thank God I got back into that old relationship with God, uh, which is with me to this day. And will be with me until Mashiach comes, God willing. So, were you able? You know, you 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 talk in the book. I want to sort of go back to this a little bit about you know finding the the meaning there. So there, you talk about the about the the, the necessary healing process about you know, and and two, I'll say like you know, I've I've learned about these ideas academically about how neshamas move in and out of this world and all these experiences and. Things happen in previous lives. We have opportunity to cocoon here. It all makes sense academically, you know, when you read those, those concepts. But it's a lot different when it becomes experiential. And that's one of the things I was when again, I was like, if I'm if we're all trying to strengthen our Muna, God forbid, any of us have to be stress tested in that way. But that's why I think you sort of sharing this 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 book with us and, and this experience hopefully enable us to embolden our Muna without having to be stress tested in that way. But you do talk a lot about how tragedy caused, you know, not just you, but other people to, to create meaning behind it. Can you, can you talk a little more about that? I'm trying to think of things to help people who may be going through this, how to find some solace in that situation. Well, when we are growing up, children, especially adolescents, there's a lot of uncertainty. We're trying to figure out who we are. When we finally get into our 20s, we think that we know who we are. We set up a path for our lives, and we try to stick with it. Second-guessing yourself is not a good idea when you're trying to move forward. So a person can continue living wholesomely and securely and smugly and never reviewing who he really is. You are apparently in business and having to do with finance or something like that. That's correct. Every business needs to be audited from time to time in one True. form or another, self-audit or an outside audit, because even if you're running your business to the best of your ability and, and with honesty, a business has so many moving parts that sometimes you lose track. And an outsider looks in on you and works with those information. And suddenly you realize there's one division that's lagging and there's not one division that there's apparently something nefarious going on. And we got to go get into it uh, so that we will be honest and straight and successful. The same thing works with a person's personal life. Uh, when do we audit ourselves? Well, we do. We, we actually have the month of Elul and the Beginning of Tishrei, that is the annual uh, audit. But when you audit yourself, as you know, there's a name for it in in audits. It's not the same audit as as a certified audit that somebody comes in from the outside. Well, a tragedy is something that forces the person to stop and 
open up. He's opened. You might say he's been cleaved open by the tragedy, but he's open and very vulnerable. And you can either let it run its course, or you can say, let me try to figure out now what my life really is all about. The first 38 years was X. Now you're going into the next chapter of your life. What needs to be improved? Where does God fit into your life? In my case, in a tragedy, the subject is emuna. The subject is, is God really in charge? How am I integrating that? And that is a good time to, to accept, to review that and fortify it and make it whole. Okay, right. Beautiful. You have a chapter on the Holocaust. And when I saw that, I got it. Like I realized like you can't really prepare someone for this topic without addressing that. Cause you know, there's this awful joke I heard. The joke goes like this. A Jew dies, goes to Shemayim. He's standing in front of the almighty and he tells a Holocaust joke and starts laughing. And the almighty says, I don't think that's funny. And the Jew says, well, I guess you had to be there. And sadly, that is a lot of what Jews believe. They have a really hard time. I even know just, you know, I had a brief intersection with the one synagogue I knew when I, before I moved in the community, it was a reformed synagogue. And, and the idea of the Shema, Hashem is one. He's orchestrating everything, not just creating the world and leave it alone, but he's intimately involved with everything. Many Jews have a problem with that. And when you talk to them about it, it always comes back to, well, what about the Holocaust? So I, I look at the Holocaust as, well, it ended 70 years ago from the genocide of the Jewish people, but it has been destroying so many Jews' connections with Hashem ever since because they refuse to accept that concept. And they can't ex- and, and they need to embrace that in order to deal with tragedy like this. Otherwise, it seems like it would stymie their their healing process. It's important for every aspect. So talk a little about that chapter and why you felt it was important to go ahead and address that topic. You can't write a book about tragedy and grief and God without addressing the Holocaust. I had to do it. It was a tough chapter. If you've read it, you, you can see that it wasn't easy to write it. Right. But the, and, and I do want to point out that while the Holocaust affected Klal Yisrael, all the Jews, six million of the whatever, 14, 15, 16 million Jews that existed before World War II, a huge percentage of the Jewish people. But in terms of the core question of why does a bad thing happen in a tragic way? In other words, a lot of little things happen to us on an ongoing basis. You know, the Talmud talks about when you stub your toe, it's a message from God. Talmud even says if you put your hand in your pocket to take out a nickel and you take out a quarter, and then you have to stick your hand in your pocket again to find the nickel, that is also a little stress test. But when a person suffers a certified tragedy, such as losing a child, losing a child to illness, losing a child to a car accident in Israel Friday, losing two children to a terrorist, those are tragedies. Those are holocausts. Those are holocausts for the immediate family, and those are holocausts for us. 
it's a, a mini Holocaust, if I may be, uh, I don't mean to minimize it, but compared to the six million, it is a quantitatively a smaller Holocaust. But qualitatively, God, if God is in charge, that w- and we and the premise of the question is where is God and why didn't He intervene? Then the question is just the same. And for that, there is no answer. And after going through different theodicies or ways that people explain the relationship of God and tragedy or God and evil, the answer that I bring out in the book is we need, as much as we have a duty to know God so that we can love him, so we have to have a frame of reference of a God that is knowable, but if God is a God that has to meet the standards that you and I can agree on, he can't be much of a God. Right. God, the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of good and evil, the creator of all the values that he put into the Torah and that he put into mankind, he is above all that. So for whether it's a new word or not a common, we have to recognize that God himself is unknowable. His essence is unknowable. And yet he contorted himself to take on a persona that we can relate to. And when we talk about God, we almost talk about him as a person. God is a man of war. God is kind. The English word for that is anthropomorphic. We put God into a human form. Rashi talks about it in Chumash quite a number of times. If not, we would be dealing with God, the to whom it may concern. That is not an intimate God. God is personal and intimate. And at the same time, we recognize and we need to recognize that that doesn't encompass all of him. Take take a child who has a parent. Let's choose a three or four-year-old. Okay. And the parent is in their 30s and they're taking care of the child. And the parent is generally kind and nurturing and supportive of this child, except when the child is doing something wrong or wants something that they shouldn't have. And the parent uh, says no, they, they have to say no, the big N, N O, not now, not now, and you're not going to get that. And the child may look at mommy or daddy and say, I hate you. And then a few minutes later, if the child falls down and bruises themselves, where do they run for comfort? They run to mommy and daddy and who picks the child up and gives them a hug for 33 seconds, puts them down and life is good again. We need to see ourselves as adults, as that little child. When we say, I hate you, I reject you, it's because I can't get what I want. And that's an instinctive reaction of the, the immature child. Nobody blames the child for saying that. Uh, but we, as mature adults, need to see God. And this came up in other que- conversations. I don't care if you view God as God, my father, or God, my mother, because in in the Kabbalah, God has both images. So there are times to relate to God as a nurturing father, or as a strict father, or as a nurturing mother. Yeah, but this is the God who we need to relate to, recognizing there's a lot more to that God than we can really encompass. And there are times that we have to defer to him, we have to accept him, 
as he is and allow tragedy to take its course and uh, until we get our land legs back. Right. Okay. I'd like to sort of wrap up with some practical advice for not someone that is enduring that type of tragedy, but knows someone that is. A lot of times when we're trying to, we have this innate desire to console the other party. And really, I think what it is, is alleviate our uncomfortableness with the fact that our friend is going through such a severe loss. As someone who's been through this, what did you want from your friends as they were you know, coming around when you're seeing Shiva and all those, you know, and past then, what did you really need from them? And what was not the right thing that, you, that, that may have, that you didn't want? Well, I'll tell you two separate things. Okay. One, one is that classically, what you described, there's an article from Rabbi Lamb who wrote the book, The Jewish Way and Death and Mourning. He, he wrote an article about banalities that people say in a house of Shiva. And I thought he lists 15 different inappropriate things that people say because a Shiva house is an awkward place to be. And if you don't have what to say, the ideal thing to do is be silent. But people are uncomfortable and they blurt out uh, some of these. They're not bad things. They're just banal. They're not meaningless. They, 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 they have no content. So that's... In, we learned many of the laws of mourning from Eov. Eov had three friends that came to comfort him. And it says they sat with him for seven days and seven nights and didn't say a word. And the Talmud learns from this that what you do for your friend is you are there for them. What you might say is not important. It might be forgotten if you have something appropriate to say say it, but you're there for them. In many communities, one and that's interesting, the law of, of coming to a house of mourning, you're not allowed to speak until the mourner in, invites you to speak, because maybe they don't want to say anything. Yes, it's going to be even more awkward, but that's what they need at the moment. We invite the mourner, speak about the deceased. It's easier when the deceased is a 89-year-old father, as opposed to a six-year-old child. But the, the point is, let the mourner be in charge. Your job is to support the mourner. They're not ready for comfort yet. Even, even under the best circumstances, it says you do not come console the mourner until the third day. The first two days, they're considered to be an emotional shock. There, there are a lot of guidelines and a lot of wisdom in, in the Torah structure of Shiva. And people are not the same. People are different. The first aid, using the term first aid, is to be supportive, to give, find out, is there anything you need? And a lot of people want to help, but that works for us. That's human nature. It, it runs out of energy pretty quickly after Shiva. But people need to make, put, make notes to themselves, be there for them in three weeks. What do you need today? And not, the, what, not in the abstract. Is there anything I can do for you today? That's the, the what's needed to get through the immediate grief. After that, if you're close enough and you can make suggestions, do they need help? Do they need to speak to a therapist? Do they need to speak to a clergyman? Do they need to speak to restructure their finances now that 
if they did have life insurance or if they didn't have life insurance, whichever one it is, that is the role of the the supporter of the person grieving. It's not your role and even not the rabbi's role, and I mentioned in the book, to, to be God's attorney. God will have to figure some of that out themselves. A year later, if they're ready to talk and they're interested, that's a good discussion. But in the first few months, forget about it. Okay. Very similar to the advice my wife has continued to give me for over 20 years, which is when she discusses a problem, I don't need to problem solve it. Just listen. Precisely. Quite figure it out. (laughs) Absolutely. Yep. Good point. Any other points, Rabbi, you would like to share with the listening audience before we part ways today? My final point is that we do have a friend in our God in heaven. We need to do everything in our power to develop that relationship so that the word that God is my friend doesn't sound awkward or or sophistry. We need to develop a relationship with God. God wants to move into our homes and into our lives. He's knocking on the door. We, being the masters of our home and our household, we can be selective how much we want to let him in. God, you're invited for the Friday night meal, but after that, you have to leave. We have other things to do on Saturday. <laughs> now, th- things of, I mean, that's a quip, but I, I mean that seriously. God wants to really be part of our lives. If we have God in our lives on a Tuesday and on an ongoing basis, then when we are in a crisis, we have a friend that we can talk to and that we can lean on. Thank you, Rabbi. Again, I encourage everyone to go get this book, Why God, Why, How to Believe in Heaven When It Hurts Like Hell, even though, thank God, I'm not dealing with this type of tragedy in my life and God willing that never happens. I found the book to be extremely an enriching read for me. It just understanding all these aspects and sort of really just sort of preparing me and strengthening my amuna without God willing that ever have to be stress tested. And like we discussed here today, you know, there, there's always going to be someone in our life who is undergoing such tragedy and, and we want to be a, a good friend to them. And I think what you teach in this book is, is helpful for all of us rabbis. So thank you for writing the book and thank you for coming on the Shema podcast to discuss it with us. My honor. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.